When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until four, so. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with bare premium plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know. What were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod, penis soon to be officially christened as a writer for Sports Illustrated. Michael, happy holidays. We are speaking on Christmas Eve. There are no games tonight. There was an unbelievable number of games last night. It made my head spin. And of course, we've got five games coming up on Christmas Day. We're going to double back next week to talk about those Christmas games. But Michael, what I wanted to do today was a little premise called 10 Teams, 10 Takes. It's very complicated. It's going to take me about five minutes to explain what this concept is. Just kidding. We're going to go through uh, 10 teams from what we've seen play over the last couple of days and just give quick hitting thoughts on uh, you know, takeaways, what impressed us, what surprised us, what popped off the screen as we're sitting there watching hours and hours of games last night. But the first of the 10 teams, Michael, is one of the teams that hasn't played, and that's the Houston Rockets. They got themselves into all sorts of pickles and jams, whatever you want to call it, uh, with the coronavirus. They have multiple players either testing positive or testing inconclusively. They had a number of players who were... Uh, essentially caught up in a contact tracing program, which means they are not, uh, you know, cleared to play because they had extended close contact with guys who tested positive. And then they had James Harden, who essentially admitted that he was at an indoor gathering with more than 15 people not wearing a mask on Monday. That wound up getting him uh, sat down for their season opener as well. You add up all of those players, Michael. They did not have enough roster players. They could not meet the minimum threshold of eight guys to take the court. And the NBA had to postpone the season opener between the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma City Thunder. So two days into the season, they've already had their first postponed game. 
obviously no postponed games at all during the bubble and no positive tests during the bubble. Kind of an ominous start, I think, not only for the Rockets, but for the league at large. So I guess my take is this. The NBA had to come down strongly on James Harden. They had to find him the $50,000, which they did. They had to sit him down for that game. And they're going to want to see multiple days of negative test results before they let him back on the court, which could happen as early as this weekend against Portland. I'm glad they drew the line in the sand, Michael. This idea of him trying to say, oh, I was just going to support my friend because she got promoted and I was just doing this and that. The cover story was absolutely thin and ridiculous, and I'm glad the NBA put its foot down. Yeah, things aren't going great in Houston right now. Um, You know, like, it's really hard to describe Harden's behavior as anything but selfish, like extremely selfish and like oblivious to if you if you think he's not being intentional with his actions or at least not intentional as a like a human being in in attending an event like this during a pandemic without a mask and just con- continuously flouting the rules uh, that the league has in place to try to keep everybody involved as safe as possible. I mean, it's it's bad. Um and like I, I just don't know where things go from here. He's supposed to take uh, make his debut on Friday, I believe, next Friday. Uh, we'll see how that goes. If he ever plays for the Rockets again, it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't. I mean, it's just it's a total mess. Yeah, it's a mess, and like it's hard to separate uh, his situation in terms of how he's acting from his trade request. But I think if you're the NBA. And Adam Silver hinted at this at a press conference. They're not necessarily treating the trade request and his health and safety protocol violations as one and the same, right? Like he could be mm-hmm. upset. I mean, he can be hinting that he wants out. He can, you know, leak a certain number of teams that he wants to play for. But ultimately, if he wasn't violating the league's health and safety protocols, there's nothing for us to talk about. Uh, he shows up late uh, to training camp and obviously had been at you know multiple clubs, not wearing masks, being videotaped, setting a very poor example. I mean, those are clear violations. The NBA has to step in there. And so for Harden, it kind of comes down to, look, can you play by the rules enough so you can actually take the court? Are you or are you just so far out on the entire experience, uh, you know, playing with your teammates and everything else that you're going to constantly do these little things that are going to wind up compromising your availability? Either way, it's just an absolutely terrible look for the Rockets, not the other positive tests, which those are going to happen. And I don't want people to say, oh, the Rockets are falling apart. They have all these positive tests. That's not fair. Anyone can catch this virus. And and even if they're being very careful and conscientious, right? Um, So there's kind of two different situations to me here. I think Harden deserves a lot of the blame for the Rockets. You know, obviously, I think it's a good situation that they were able to, you know, catch the positive tests in their, uh, you know, testing protocol. And then they were able to work with the league to facilitate a proactive response. Would you agree with me that game never should have taken place with that, you know, that kind of spread within a team or that kind of fear of spread within a team? They made the right decision to postpone it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, safety is paramount. It should always be the priority for this season. I'm glad that uh, they didn't try to force feed any action to fans because, I mean, also what's really just, you know, uh, I guess disturbing is that fans are allowed in the Toyota Center in Houston. Um, It's just... I don't know. I I understand social distancing. I understand everyone has to wear masks and everything. I just wish that fans weren't allowed in in places where cases are still really high um, to I I, I don't even know what the benefit is, what the upside is for having fans in an arena like that. Um, But I I do agree with your point that we shouldn't villainize 
players who test positive, I, I, I feel like that might be a thing we see throughout, I don't know, like NBA Twitter, maybe even some people in the media might do it. Uh, so I just want to say that like, we're not ever going to do that. Um, and a- anyone can catch this virus, even if you are taking the utmost precautions. Correct. And and don't try to make a leap between, oh, the Rockets had a dysfunctional summer and all of a sudden, okay, now they've got a whole bunch of players testing positive. I mean, those are things that should not be connected. Uh, people should be treating this virus as kind of a health matter only. And it, it can touch everybody. And it has touched an awful lot of people this year. Uh, Michael, on the point about the fans in the stands, I was watching the Tampa Bay Raptors last night on their league pass cam, and they did show a few fans on the dance cam in the building at that game. And that was spooky and weird, man. It didn't. It did <laughs> not feel right. Uh, most of the fans, I, I believe, were wearing masks. They were still kind of excited to be shown on the uh, on the camera for sure. They were very spread out, so you could kind of tell like the groups that came together. I think the groups were limited to like four people, like in, in each little uh, you know row or, or section. But still, I mean, it was. It did feel too early. It felt kind of like Twilight Zone behavior, especially kind of. Uh, you know, coming on the heels of the night before going to Staples Center to watch Lakers Clippers and having that feel just totally post-apocalyptic with nobody in there and nothing but empty seats and just having it be a very, very, uh, you know, barren experience to see fans in some other gyms around the uh, the league. is just like, whoa, what is happening here? But uh, that's been kind of uh, United States' response to coronavirus all along, very decentralized and uneven and inconsistent from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And uh, not sure that's worked out great for us. <laughs> so uh, anyway, well, all we have here is dark humor, Michael, on Christmas Eve. Let's switch to some happier subjects. I have a feeling there's a team that you want to talk about after a big Wednesday night victory. Who's your first team on 10 teams, 10 takes, Michael? Um, you know, I was texting you last night about this. It, it's obviously the Boston Celtics. I was, oh. I was very... I was very pleased with how that game went and how that game ended, in particular with just the god Jason Tatum hitting an absolutely incredible uh, step back three over your boy Giannis Inc. Uh, banked it in with 0.4 seconds left. And then, a, you know, a tough night for Giannis, even though he had a ridiculous stat line and he was unstoppable in the fourth quarter. But, um, you know, stepping to the free throw line, two. Two, uh, two free throw attempts down two makes the first just as like six to eight inches short in the second just a tough break for him um, but I mean like I guess like going into that game I was not feeling very optimistic about the Celtics based on how I saw them play in the preseason they didn't have energy they looked like they were really missing both Gordon Hayward and Kemba Walker I mean taking one away I think they could survive taking two away it was a real struggle um and right now as we record this they have the number one offense in the entire nba so uh you know it was an incredible display of shot making from jalen brown in particular who finished with 33 points jason tatum as i said earlier um he took like 28 shots which is just like absurd and he didn't get to the free throw line once finished with 30 um it's just it's really good to see and jeff teague like and tristan thompson two guys who i didn't have a lot of I should say with Jeff Teague more um, more notably, I didn't have a lot of uh, confidence in their ability to kind of step into roles so soon and be productive, but both of them were. So Boston looked good. And I mean, this is without Kemba Walker and like Aaron Niesmith didn't even crack the rotation, which is a little disappointing. Obviously, Romeo Langford is out. They're thin all over the place, but 
they somehow beat the Bucks, and the Bucks played great. So it's a good good night for Boston. Oh, the Bucks played great in the fourth quarter. I was so excited because you started your Celtics gloating by text message at the start of the fourth quarter, and they nearly blew <laughs> a 17-point lead. So I had actually, I'm going to let you in behind the scenes over here, Michael, of how depressing the ending of that game was for me. I had actually cropped your text message, and I had I was ready to tweet it out. And it was gonna. My tweet was gonna say this: the my uh, Milwaukee Bucks went on like a thirty-eight to seventeen run since Michael Pina, uh, you know, sent me this text message, and I was just gonna rub it in your face, and it was gonna be amazing, especially after Drew Holiday hit that corner three. It was just gonna be a painful moment for you and all the uh, green beer drinking fans. And then Jason Tatum completely unintentionally bakes in a three-pointer. There is absolutely no way he meant to do that. Watching the ball come out of his hand on that shot, I thought it was going to hit the top of the backboard and go backwards into the stands. What do you know? It kisses in absolutely perfectly. Um, He played it off brilliantly. I'm going to give him full credit on that. He absolutely acted like he had meant to do that. Um, And then just a heartbreaking uh, free throw on the other end for Giannis. You know, I'll say this. When they called that foul on the final play, you know, there's a lob to Giannis. They call a foul on Mm. Tristan Thompson with .4 seconds. If you're Milwaukee, even though that gave you a chance to force overtime, I think if you could do it over, you would just say, you know what, no foul. We're going to go home and just take our two-point loss because now you've got Giannis thinking about the free throws even more than he already overthinks the free throws. And I think it was kind of a nightmare start for him to the season because, I mean, this is the the thing that's kind of uh, driven him crazy, especially over the last 12 months. So I guess the people I really feel sorry for is the Golden State Warriors because Giannis is going to come out and put 40 on them on Christmas. There's no question (laughs) about that in my mind. Maybe more. We'll see how angry he is. And I also feel like he's probably just stewing over his family dinner today and probably just like completely angry, mopey all day long. I wouldn't blame him. I love high usage Tatum. He looks mm-hmm. better. The three, po- the high volume three pointers from him. That's what I want to see every night. Of course, I want to see him go to the basket more. You mentioned the free throws, and uh, that could be a function of just how Milwaukee plays defense. But um, the more shots he's taking, the better. I think he's in, in line for another big leap this season. Um, and you know, clearing some of these other guys out, it's just sort of like, all right, you know, it's it's. Jalen Brown and and Jason Tatum do your thing every single possession and that should be pretty profitable for them I don't know if you're going to get that level of impact from Teague every night so I would be uh you know cool in your jets a little bit on that one uh but overall they definitely they look solid they look very (laughs) solid Milwaukee tried to shake some things up you know going a little bit smaller at times down the stretch uh trying to get better spacing around Giannis I still think it was a little bit predictable at times when they were uh you know in their their late game offense but you know Drew Holiday did hit that big shot like I mentioned uh I wasn't that impressed with you know basically the Bucks four through nine I mean I don't think those guys really brought a lot to the table mm. DiVincenzo had some really good moments so I guess maybe he would be an exception there um, especially early on I just I don't think that they're as cohesive and as deep and as together as they were these last couple of years I think it puts a lot of pressure every night on their top three guys and they're good and they're going to win a lot of games with those top three guys I just don't view them at the same type of team They've been these last couple of years. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. They did lose opening night uh, to Boston last year, if I recall, in a similarly heartbreaking fashion, if I remember. But uh, I don't know. I, I came away a little bit empty from the Bucks experience. I came away wishing for Bucks fans that they had Bogdan Bogdanovich because, like, imagining him on that team, 
like just pencil them in for the NBA championship. Um, without him, as you said, they have a top three that is very impressive. That played a lot of minutes last night. Which shout out to Bud, I guess, for for uh, acquiescing and listening to NBA Twitter's cries. But beyond that, like it is a thin, thin team. Um, I think Tory Craig was a little bit banged up, or he didn't really he didn't play at all. Uh, Bryn Forbes had a a rough show. I mean, it was uh, DJ Augustine did not play. Um, he's injured, so maybe he can alleviate some of those issues. But like this roster, if I'm looking at one championship contender right now, that I think that I would guarantee actually that will make a trade before the deadline, it is the Milwaukee Bucks. I'm with you. Makes all the sense in the world. All right, Michael, my next team on 10 Teams, 10 Takes, the Los Angeles Lakers. As I mentioned, I went to Staples Center. My take, uh, you know, LeBron said it was kind of bittersweet to receive the rings on ring night in an empty building with no fans. And my take was the whole experience of going to the game or having these games right now is just really melancholy. You know, I don't want to, you know, beat around the bush. I don't want to uh, try to you know, rain on anyone's parade either the other direction. But I mean, we should just kind of state what it feels like to be in that arena. I mean, Staples Center usually holds 19,000. There was probably at most 200, if that, including the players and teams, very limited media, uh, you know, uh, availability and access. They sit us at the, the top of the 100 section and spaced out around the bowl. So you're really not interacting with anyone else. They did a very nice job, uh, Michael, with the cleaning of the workstations they had a little sign that said when the, the last time it was disinfected you know entering the arena it was totally contactless from the parking standpoint from the ch- uh, security check-in standpoint um, they had grab-and-go meals uh, for the reporters that you had to eat outside um, at, at a distance as opposed to you know bringing any food into the arena and then food and drink in the actual arena itself was totally banned and and large portions of the arena were actually roped off to everyone so you know they're they're trying to keep the circle, you know, involving the players, like the little bubble around the players and the teams as tight as possible. And I think they did a nice job with it. You know, hopefully that will pay dividends over the course of a long season. Um, we shall see. But it was a very spooky rig night. I mean, when it starts off and Adam Silver is almost apologizing to the Lakers fans for the fact that they're not able to be in attendance. And Jeannie Buss's speech is basically like, look, guys, we really miss you. And, you know, it felt very genuine from her. And the players are kind of manufacturing their own energy, trying to dance around and get their rings. And they come out super flat. They're down 20 in the first quarter because they just played, you know, 10 weeks ago. And they're just sort of like, what are we even doing out here? The whole thing, I don't want to call it hokey, the whole thing just, you know, it didn't really live up to a typical expectation. Ring night can be such a fun experience, and this one just felt empty. It did, and and it's a reminder of how important the fans are to the sport. That sounds like lip service, but it's absolutely true. I mean, basketball is so much better when you've got 20,000 people reacting in real time to every call, to every, uh, you know, a big shot, to every coaching screw up and all that kind of stuff. And it's just not the same. And it was a little bit sad. I'm sure there's going to be an adjustment period as we go forward here this season. But to me, it was even kind of an emptier and more soulless experience than the bubble, because at least with the bubble, you had a certain level of um, intimacy, you know, like you're kind of close to the cord. It's a smaller gym. It doesn't quite feel so empty. And this just felt broad and vast. And like the games were being played a mile away from where I was sitting. And the whole thing just, you know, bummed me out a little bit, Michael, I got to say. I can imagine being there. It felt cavernous and cold Um, on television. 
Uh, I would say that that ring ceremony was one of the best that I've ever seen, honestly. And I hope that going forward, they, I mean, they won't because family or members would rather be at the arena. <laughs> but like, I thought it was really emotionally powerful seeing the family members on the Jumbotron. Um, you know, uh, LeBron had some students from his school, his kids, uh, Alex Caruso's parents. I mean, it was just... I thought that was wonderful. Um, I'm sure the players really loved it, and uh, so that that actually like kind of stuck out to me as something that was like really cool to see and really beautiful. Um, but like basketball wise, did you have any Laker takeaways, Ben? No, they didn't care. I mean, they were in the second gear the whole game. So I mean, don't take anything from that game. And people were wanting to rush to kill their big man. Oh, you know these guys. They're not. They downgraded at center. I mean, come on. Like these guys were barely going hard. I mean. Now, LeBron, did he sweat the whole night? I don't know. I mean, it was uh, it was a very half-hearted effort from them, and it looked no further than how they handled the minutes. I mean, it's a relatively close game in the fourth quarter. LeBron doesn't play the final seven minutes, and AD comes out with three minutes to go. I mean, they would never handle that situation, uh, time score, in the same way. So I would say punted. Um, you know, maybe from the Clippers side, you're, you're feeling better because you got really nice nights from Paul George and, and also a pretty good uh, night from Kawhi Leonard as well. So at least you're starting the season on the right foot. But from the Lakers side, they're just like, whatever. They do not care. I'll I'll agree with that. Um, you know, I think that particularly LeBron, I mean, 28 minutes, as you said, like, you know, he's missing layups left and right. Um, I thought what I love about the Clippers, Lakers, every time I get to watch them play is there's like a real strategic back and forth. And I really pay attention to every possession because I, well, I I was wrong last year, of course, and everybody else was too, but I anticipate them meeting up in the playoffs when it's really going to get X's and O's heavy. And, you know, seeing Anthony Davis be the primary defender on Kawhi for basically the whole night and seeing LeBron, um, you know, I, I think in the playoffs it'll be a little bit different, but seeing him really slacking on the defensive end, um, seeing just the way Ty Lue was, I mean, the offense looked very different to me for the Clippers. I think I, I'm with you. I, I Like the Lakers had nothing to prove last or two nights ago. Um, but the Clippers really kind of stepped up, I thought, and they looked very interesting. And Serge Ibaka fits in really well there, and that's something to watch moving forward too. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's you know, it, it was a very weird uh, game, particularly out of LeBron. Well, here's what I feel: a level of sympathy, really, for the Clippers because they're going to be dealing with the "it doesn't matter until the playoffs" talk all season long, right? Even more than usual, especially after last year. And they're a really good team that deserves credit for playing really well. I mean, Paul George was sensational there with that second half push. I mean, both he and Kevin Durant had really nice, I thought, opening nights. And Kyrie Irving, too, um, that maybe get lost in the shuffle because of other storylines, whether it's the Lakers ring night or, uh, you know, the Warriors kind of melting down on, on national TV in game one. And, and maybe the the attention doesn't go quite the right uh, direction and to the right sources. Um, but that's going to be their burden. You know, they have to understand that. I'm sure they've already kind of come to terms with that. They're not going to be getting credit from anybody all year. And it puts them in a perfect situation to try to surprise some people and, and get back to be the underdog. That's healthy for the Clippers. I, I feel like they always, as just as an organization, are better suited to trying to be the underdog. Anytime the expectations raise and they're in a position where they're sort of the favorites, it just always goes wrong. So uh, maybe it's a more natural spot. The last thing I do want to point out, though, Michael, you know, we've been tracking this Kawhi versus LeBron 
you know, battle for LA rivalry for 17 months now. And before the game, Kawhi Leonard went kind of out of his way to offer a handshake to LeBron James, kind of a congratulatory thing right after the ring night before tip off. I thought it was a very classy move by Kawhi Leonard. I mean, these guys have both kind of gone back and forth in their own ways about who owns the city. And and Kawhi's had all these new balance ad campaigns about how he's the king of LA and all this stuff. And so I thought for him, you know, it was a a subtle uh, moment. It it passed within a couple of seconds, but I was a little bit surprised to see it. Um, They obviously hadn't had an opportunity to catch up, you know, before, uh, or I guess since the bubble. And, And so from Kawhi Leonard, he had to take his loss there on year one, and, and now they're back trying to do it the other, you know, trying to get revenge, I would say, in uh, year two. Do you think Kawhi is conscious of, like, that those New Balance ads even exist? It's a good question. I wonder just subtly if he's actually, like, <laughs> if he's the director, if it's his vision, you know, and he just, like, has everybody bamboozled and fooled that he doesn't really care, and in reality, he's, like, the artistic director behind the whole thing. He's the puppet master pulling all of the strings. I guess we'll never know, Michael. I guess we will never know. Who's your next team on 10 teams, 10 takes? Uh, I'm going to go with the Atlanta Hawks. Ooh. Um, You know, I think for a lot of the teams that I picked, and maybe you as well, it's really hard to not overreact um, to one. Obviously, everyone's only played one game, and some of the teams, like I texted you after the uh, Warriors-Nets game. I was like wondering if, if... the Warriors were that bad or the Nets were that good. And it's really difficult to kind of parse and find an answer. But with the Hawks, you know, it was kind of difficult to know if the Bulls defense was really that bad or if the Hawks offense, which we have talked about ad nauseum heading into this season, is really that good. You know, I think Trey Young hit some absolutely outrageous shots, which he's prone to do from time to time. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich looked really good. John Collins looked like a phenom. And I really think one of my takeaways is just that the Hawks are going to regret not extending him because he's going to put up some serious numbers this season. Um, Atlanta also did not have Clint Capella or uh, Okungwu, which is, you know, uh, uh, those are like their two defensive stalwarts. So I think that they can get even better. Rondo didn't play. Um, You know, I'm really excited about Atlanta. I think their offense looked really good. Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter, uh, Kevin Herter, those guys look really comfortable, which is really good to see. Um, Yeah, this offense is just, it's terrific. And Trey, you know, Trey was playing a little bit more off the ball which is the number one thing that I was looking for. Um, He still ran a ton of pick and roll because that's what their identity is. But those small adjustments, I think, will go a long way throughout the season. My takeaway from that game was it was a brilliant move by the schedulers to set up Atlanta's (laughs) new offense uh, against, I mean, Kobe White and Zach Levine. Is that the worst defensive backcourt in NBA history? Is it in the conversation? It could be. Yeah, I watched... um, Russell Westbrook and Ish Smith share the floor uh, uh, earlier this morning, so they, they, they give them a run for their money, but it's up there for sure. I mean, it was like 86 at halftime, right? <laughs> it was absurd, yeah. yeah. It was absurd. That's one of those where it's like, okay, Atlanta, I want to see a little bit more from your offense. Chicago, I've seen all I need to see from your defense. It's completely unsalvageable. You're going to have to figure something else out. Um, I, I would also say good luck to Billy Donovan. You know, this sounds mm. like it could be a rough year uh, and maybe a rough couple of years. We'll see how it goes. Um, I know people are really high on Kobe White's offense. I feel like they're going to have to make a choice there, right? If you want him to be your starting point guard or, or however you want to frame it, 
you're going to have to find a different option at two. One of those guys is going to have to come off the bench. You've got to stagger the defensive disasters, right? And you're already paying Zach, so maybe he has to stay in the starting lineup. I don't know exactly how you're going to massage that thing from a uh, you know a PR standpoint, but I to me that's untenable, and I'm I'm willing to go out on that branch after just one game. Michael, my next team uh, that I wanted to bring up the New Orleans Pelicans, and it's a pretty simple, quick take for you. They look happy again. They are not the angry, uh, you know, disappointing, sad, let's just get out of the bubble team that we saw, you know, back in July where, you know, Alvin Gentry gets fired. They don't really seem like they're on the same page. Guys aren't really uh, buying in and, and putting forward max effort. I think that they have a weird collection of vets and young players, but they were all kind of clicking on the same page in that first game in pretty impressive fashion. It's not the Zion show anymore. It's not like they're trying to run everything through him. He's not, he's not necessarily like this huge hype beast getting all the attention, you know, face the organization. It's kind of a more balanced thing they've got going on. So that might come at the expense of his own individual offensive numbers a little bit, but it looks pretty functional. They got contributions from up and down the roster. Brandon Ingram was probably their best player in that opening game, uh, stuffing the stat sheet and, and doing a decent job as a point forward as well. And, uh, you know, I think they're feeling pretty good. The vibe just looked excellent. If you're saying who has good body language to start the year, I would say it's the Pelicans. And, uh, you know, the shooting problems that we were you know, maybe a little bit concerned about or some of the spacing issues and all that stuff with the big guys. It didn't really bother them so much. You know, Toronto had to go small late in that game because, you know, Pascal is basically their five in those situations because they lost Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka and New Orleans just won that stylistic matchup. You know, they were able to uh, do what they wanted to do and, and Toronto really didn't stand much of a chance late in that game. So you don't want to re- overreact too much to, okay, they're going to be fine, you know, with, with the big ball and all that. But I do think we need to look at them as a a team that is not the same uh, group of strangers that we saw. And that is uh, positive because I think their ceiling is decently high. Could they be a seven seed if things click right and everybody stays healthy and they've got enough, you know, uh, talent, you know, starting caliber talent, whether it's Bledsoe, Adams, uh, Lonzo Ball. I mean, all those guys are solid if they've uh, if they're clicking on the same cylinder. So to me, um, you know, hope springs eternal in New Orleans, and it's good to see because you know ultimately you want to see Zion on a winner. You want to see him contributing in, in the lots of different ways. He's really good at doing the the little things to help you win, and he's maybe uh, struggled at times when asked to carry an offense. And this just seems like a healthier balance all around. Yeah, I really like your points about Zion. I mean, he was he wasn't picking his spots per se. I mean, he was very aggressive on the glass. He was moving around very active off the ball. What you don't really factor in, I think, when you look at New Orleans' lack of spacing is that when Zion is like spaced out on the, at the three-point line or even like 18 feet from the rim, whoever's guarding him, I notice, like is petrified to leave him. Because, like, if he's moving around and floating around, like, he is the most devastating back cut lob threat in the NBA, arguably. He's going to pound the offensive glass and get the rebound if the shot misses. You can't leave his body. So there were plays where, like, Eric Bledsoe would run a high pick and roll with Steven Adams, and you'd think that, 
whoever is guarding Zion, um, i.e. OG Ananobi, would be able to kind of pack the pain and stop Adam's role. And he's just kind of helpless because he's he's so worried about Zion and you can't really blame him at all. So like the spacing is really interesting for this team. I don't think that J.J. Redick, well, I should say J.J. Redick could shoot 54 percent from the three point line. Who like (laughs) who would doubt him? Um, But, you know, Eric Bledsoe went four for eight. Lonzo Ball went four for eight. Uh, You know, if that keeps up, then this team's probably going to win the championship. But um, that probably had something to do with their mood, too. Right. Everybody couldn't miss. So everybody's happy. Exactly. It's a great point. I mean, exactly. there's going to be swings yeah. there. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so they're a really interesting team, and I, I don't know what their ceiling is. It's really hard to peg. I, I still think that they are. You know, they'll be in the play-in conversation. I'm not going to say that they are. You know, going to get a six seed or a five seed or anything like that. But they look good, and they look like they look more disciplined too. Is something else I'll say, especially in transition defense. Yeah, they look like they were paying attention to Stan during training camp, and that's that's a good sign because. I mean, it's a tough spot for these coaches to be in. I think we've probably spent a lot of time discussing young players. Do they have enough time to acclimate to the NBA? Are they going to have some developmental opportunities, rush training camp? Like, you know, some of these coaches are really being put on the spot trying to bring these teams together in a short amount of time, especially if you had a lot of offseason movement uh, like the New Orleans Pelicans did for them to kind of hit the ground running against a team that was bringing back most of its rotation. I mean, Toronto didn't change that many pieces. They lost a few, uh, but their core guys were the same. I think that's, uh, you know, you're feeling great if you're a Pelicans fan after one game, and and we'll see how that goes. All right, give me your next team, Michael. Okay, um, let's go with the Indiana Pacers. Um, Just like a not not a sexy team at all. Um, You know, I think heading into this season, I was pretty down on them just because of their, I mean, they have the most continuity from last year to this year. Obviously, they changed their coaching staff, but... I just kind of felt that they were kind of like a been there, done that type of situation for me as in terms of just how I perceive them. But like the way they played against the Knicks, I mean, it's it's one game against the New York Knicks. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But like they were zipping up the floor. They basically didn't take any long twos in the entire game, except for a couple that Malcolm Brogdon shot in the first quarter. Um, and you know, like it, it, they just don't look like the same team. They were playing, uh, Doma Sabonis with like th- two other point guards and Doug McDermott and Justin Holiday. Like it, it just, it, they were modernized with the same, it's like, I don't know. It's like a chef who has like the, the two chefs with the same ingredients and one meal is great and one meal is not as great. Um, no disrespect to Nate McMillan, but just like aesthetically watching this Indiana Pacers team might be more fun than it was last season and was for the last couple of years, actually. So th- I thought that that was pretty interesting. So how are you going to say Nate McMillan, you don't know how to cook, but no disrespect? Like, wh- <laughs> what is that, Michael? Come on. It, it, your Nate McMillan's meal just isn't as tasty. Um, it just doesn't have the right flavors. For me personally, I'm sure others will find it to be a delicacy. Um, and, you know, it'll fill you up, but it's not it's not like uh, the world's greatest. Yeah, you're like, meal. tune into Indiana, no longer food poisoning. I mean, this is your takeover <laughs> here. It's just unbelievable. Um, no disrespect, though. Uh, that is promising. Like, they got a lot of talented guys on that team, especially in, in mm-hmm. the Eastern Conference. They go fairly deep with good players. Um, yeah, I, I always look at quality of competition in these early ones to say, okay, are they going to look like they're going to be running 
training camp drills around the Knicks every single night and everybody, you know, is getting crazy numbers and, and Sabonis is just, you know, box score stat stuff in and all that when they're not playing the Knicks. I think that's an open question. On the Knicks side of things, I saw a number of excited and happy tweets about RJ Barrett, which I really couldn't remember happening basically at all last year. One thing I've really got my eye on, uh, Michael, is which second-year guys make a big leap this year because of the long layoff. We just haven't seen them uh, play for quite a while. Barrett's a guy, uh, frankly, I had almost completely written off in my own mind. It's just not really being someone who uh, I really have much faith in. Did he show you anything in, in the first night that made you think, huh, okay, this guy could evolve here into the player who they, they drafted and, and they want him to become? Or was it empty numbers and another blowout loss for New York? I mean, for me, when I look at R.J. Barrett, I'm way more concerned about the defense than the offense and the shot making. I think that eventually that'll all come around for him. He has good touch. He has good size. He has good feel offensively, even though he isn't the most athletic guy. But um, so, like, I, I, you know, it's it's good that shots were falling. That's what you want to see. He made like it seemed like he made like eight or nine in a row at one point early on in that game. But um defensively is really more so especially off the ball is really more so what I'm concerned about with him and his development curve so you know I I didn't really I wasn't honestly paying that much attention to his defense last night because it was the first game of the season and I was really more intrigued by the Indiana Pacers and everything that they had going on offensively um but that's something that I think people should keep an eye on even more so than his ability to get points I hear you. I mean, on that one, it's like, I don't know really what I think he's going to be as a a defensive player. Like if he's average once he, you know, gets into his Mm -hmm. prime, fine. But you're drafting him as a lead scoring playmaker type of guy who's going to be your main offensive option. And that looked like a path to nowhere last year as a rookie. And he was completely set up to fail. The coaching issues, uh, you know, the front office on the hot seat, none of the pieces fit, 19 power forwards. Everybody knows that story. And so if he can make some progress towards that in his second year, look, he doesn't have to be John Morant, you know, throwing alley-oops to himself off the backboard and scoring 40 points and all that. But if he can look be a, a guy where it's like, all right, uh, you know, we know we're going to get 25 from him every single night and he's going to be able to do it relatively efficiently. New York needs that player desperately because they really have no other foundational building blocks on that roster right now. And you're not going to convince me that a guy like Abi Toppin is going to be, you know, a franchise level player. Uh, based on his age and and some of his own limitations too, right? So it kind of has to be RJ. Um, It's a big burden for him. Hopefully he makes some steps in that direction. Here are some of the other second-year players that I've kind of got circled. I'm hoping for them to take steps forward here in year two. RJ Barrett, uh, Darius Garland in Cleveland, Jarrett Culver for Minnesota. I would love that one to happen. We'll see if it does. I think his his career has been off to kind of an an unimpressive start. Uh, Cam Reddish uh, in Atlanta, uh, you know, Tyler Hero, we saw a step in the bubble. Is there going to be another step there for him? And then Matisse Teibel and Brandon Clark, guys who I think earned themselves some reputation as rookies, but their teams are going to need, uh, you know, them to take steps forward as well here uh, in, in the second year. So those are a couple of the names I've got. Anyone else you want to add to that list? You know, who really intrigues me is Keldon Johnson um, in San Antonio, who had 16 in. Um, his season debut played 32 minutes for the Spurs. So like, I I don't know. I'm just really intrigued with a lot of stuff that's going on in San Antonio with regards to their playing style, with regards to just the fact that they are about to transition or have our, our mid transition from, you know, a really respectable dynasty into this new era, um, 
with a lot of young new faces. So he's one of those guys. I'm really intrigued by him. You didn't say Michael Porter Jr., which I thought was uh, interesting, but maybe you kind of already see him as a as a you you see the the trajectory for him already. Well, he's a guy that uh, we have sort of already penciled into having like I think I picked him as most improved player right so um I think Jesus. he's in a situation we, we don't need to go over that again but yeah yeah you hate the second year picks uh, on that award <laughs> but I just think the opportunity is is kind of wide open there for for him and he's in a little bit of a different spot than some of these other guys where um uh, you know I, I think he at least flashed like pretty consistent offensive ability and, and he had some moments in the playoffs too where he's like playing at a little bit of a higher level I mean guys like Garland I mean Cam Reddish like they haven't played since March you know neither one of them really had major impact as a rookie it's an awful lot of questions coming out they just have a lot to prove same thing with Culver um, but these guys are drafted in the lottery for a reason right I mean they're talented players um, you know in their college careers and and certainly uh, highly coveted high school prospects so you know let's see it you know now you've got your feet wet uh, you know it's time for round two let's see what you've got um, all right, Michael, my next team, it's a little bit similar to what you're talking about with the Indiana Pacers in terms of style of play and all that. It's the Utah Jazz. Did you happen to catch any of their game against Portland or even see the box score by any chance? I saw a little bit, um, not too much for me to have any substantive uh input here <laughs> but uh, i did see that they completely just shellacked portland in portland well there's one number you need to circle in the box score 53 point attempts michael this is not your father's utah jazz this is not your older brother's <laughs> utah jazz this is not even your utah jazz from like 18 months ago 53 point attempts apparently talking to david Locke and uh the other night he said that's going to be kind of their goal, their benchmark. They Not that they want to go full Mori ball, but they have so many guys they feel like can shoot the ball, and they have so many above-average catch-and-shoot options that they're going to be just whipping the ball around the perimeter as much as possible and just launching threes after threes after threes after threes. That makes them more interesting. I think you know, one wrinkle there, it makes them less dependent on Mike Conley to have like a giant bounce back season, right? Like he doesn't have to be this crazy pick and roll maestro that he was in Memphis. He doesn't try to have to turn back the clock and all that. He basically just has to keep the ball moving. And when it comes to him and he's open, he's got to stroke that catch and shoot three. I think he's capable of doing that. Um, having so many guys, you know, shooting from outside should open things up uh, for Donovan Mitchell going to the basket as well. And it, it should allow him uh, potentially the opportunity to take the next step forward as a, a passing playmaker. You really want want to get him locked in and just really solid with the drive and kick reads and I think that's going to be uh you know a, a capable and available to him if you're always keeping you know at least three shooting threats on the court it's just fascinating for a team that's going to play pretty you know two pretty traditional centers uh you know one at each at all times between Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors mm -hmm. to still be able to get up 53s is pretty impressive because it's not coming from all five spots right you're really only shooting from four spots but still that's that number jumped off the page to me they could be really interesting I mean it's basically an all-vet rotation a lot of scoring threats a lot of guys who are solid defensive pieces and uh you know I, I'm not sure they're going to be a top three defense like they were you know a couple you know, three four years ago but I think they're going to be able to, to do enough on that end, you know, around Rudy Gobert and then just, you know, turn themselves into a much more entertaining, higher powered offense. And we saw it in game one. Like you said, they blew Portland off the court. The game wasn't close. It was over by halftime, basically. 
So, I, I mean, I guess my question for you is, do you, have you kind of changed your tune at all about the possible, you know, we had that Rudy Gobert conversation about his extension and whether or not the Utah Jazz would ever win the title or even make the finals no, no, throughout no, the, the no, no, do you no. have it, that this is not, you're not, you're not changing your tune there, not changing your, your feel? I, I look, I, what we, we haven't really seen a team use that particular formula without high-level superstar players and have a lot of playoff success with it, right? So I think that this could be a situation maybe if this new uh, style of play really clicks, maybe they're surprising people and grabbing the two seed. If they stay healthy and uh, you know they're just able to be that like a night uh, night after night offensive machine, you know, similar to like the Milwaukee Bucks these last couple of years where they've just been a very high-powered consistent offense, you know, relying a lot on on driving kick threes and, and ball movement to uh, three-point shooters, then that could really, you know, help juice their regular season win total a little bit. But I think ultimately when the playoffs slow down a little bit, when other teams crank up their defense, their real playmaking threat is Mitchell, and they don't have a great second option. They've got a couple of good second options, whether it's Ingles, uh, you know, Conley or Bogdanovich as, as guys who can, you know, do a little something with the basketball, but I just don't think they have quite enough raw offensive talent to uh, carry this thing even further than that. Yeah. You know, if you're going to take, you know, I think 50, their three point rate was 53% in the first game of the season, which for reference, the Houston Rockets led the NBA last year at 50%. So that, kind of tells you something if you're going to take that many threes and like consistently and you have guys who can actually make them and the Utah Jazz have really good three-point shooters and you are in a playoff series and you're able to still manufacture that type of offense and you have a healthy Donovan Mitchell who in my opinion I don't you know I I go back and forth a little bit on this but in my opinion I'm, I'm siding towards him being good enough to be the best offensive player on a champion and, you know, I think it's just interesting. And the fact that their defense is not absolutely atrocious and will never be with Rudy Gobert uh, in the fold, it just it, it, it opens them up as some a team that I want to put in that conversation, not saying that they should be the favorite. I hear you. Well, that's good. You're going to get yourself a, a whole new fan base. The Mavericks fans are going to hate you, <laughs> but the Utah Jazz fans will rally around you. Absolutely, Michael, if you keep them in that contender conversation. Real quick on Portland, a lot of hand-wringing. They had a tough preseason. They got blown out a couple times. They come out on the opening night, just get absolutely worked. People are very nervous about their defense. Um, they are going to have some issues there. I mean, you look at some of the the individual defensive pieces, you know, whether it's Cantor, whether it's Carmelo Anthony, whether it's Roddy Hood kind of post Achilles, that's not great. You know, and there, there's going to be a lot of stretches of games where they're struggling, especially because, you know, their two main guards are small. Um, at the same time, I would just say, hey, look, let's have a little bit of uh, a patience here. You've got a whole bunch of new pieces in the rotation, including multiple new starters, including uh, Covington, uh, Derek Jones Jr., and Nurkic, who missed all of last year with injury. They still don't have Zach Collins back, and their bench is you know pretty much made over. So I would say, um, you know, pump the brakes. Uh, don't hit the panic button quite yet. The defense looked terrible. It might look terrible for a while. They're trying to you know change up their style, and, and you had mentioned that previously with Terry Stotts trying to uh, you know shift things pretty dramatically. It's going to require some uh, you know fortitude there to to see that plan through. But I think patience is in order for Portland. Um, but, uh, you know, also the, the Blazers fans need to give some credit to the Jazz offense. I mean, that was an impressive mm-hmm. performance last night. 
An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and, like, so simple? And what else was it going to—like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Who's your next team, Michael? 10 teams, 10 takes. Okay, let's talk about the Sixers. Okay. Um, You know, I don't know if you watched that game, Ben, between the uh, Philadelphia 76ers and the Washington Wizards. It was a good game. It was enjoyable. The Wizards might be a little bit better than I thought, potentially. But, like, the Sixers should have lost that game. And they didn't score a bucket in the third quarter until the six-minute mark. And, like, I thought that this team was going to, you know, I was I didn't think they were going to look like the 2017 Golden State Warriors or anything like that. But I thought that, you know, you added legitimate shooting around Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and that the offense would flow a little bit more and it would look a little bit more impressive and a little bit more efficient. And for them to struggle, I know it was just the opening game and that's fine. It's It's, you know, shaking off the cobwebs. But for them to struggle like that against the Washington Wizards and make that defense look really good for stretches was just like, it was jarring. And like, I'm a little concerned, honestly. And like, let me ask you this question. Do they need to trade for James Harden? The answer is yes, Michael. (laughs) I think you're right. No, uh, like, let me ask you a quick question. Um, Who is their third best player right now? Because I, I was 
you know, uh, scrolling through NBA Twitter kind of after I was watching the game, and there was a lot of Shake Milton buzz. Let me tell you something. If Shake Milton is your third best player, uh, you are not winning a playoff series. So um, that's it's pretty tough. You know, I said earlier that the Bucks were going to have to make a trade before the deadline. And I, you know, Daryl Morey is the GM in Philadelphia now. So they almost will definitely be making a trade, but like, I don't know, maybe Tobias Harris will play a little better as the season goes on, but I was a little concerned. Well, you remember who said trade everybody and you got outraged. I wanted the entire team traded (laughs) and the body language stuff is still off. You know, like their hope was that doc rivers would come in with a new voice, uh, a new spirit, a new motivational tactic. And, you know, Embiid was kind of dragging again early in the first half. The whole team was just kind of going through the motions early in that game. It was not a very impressive debut. Uh, You know, they were able to turn it pretty strong late. But I just go back and, like, look who Washington had on the court during crunch time. And they had Isaac Bonga and Thomas Bryant. You know, two guys, I mean, what – like, you're never going to win games if you're closing with those guys. I mean, it's just going to be, you know, practically impossible to do that. And, you know, Philadelphia realized finally in the last couple of minutes, if you just go straight at them, you know, right to the rim, you're going to be able to get whatever you want. And that's really all it took to win that game. Um, Why it took 44 minutes to, to understand that, I don't know. In Philadelphia's defense, I did think their late game offense was a little bit uh, less formulaic. In other words, they were able to kind of work in Curry here, work in Milton there, not necessarily just have, you know, Simmons like sprinting forward into a defense and, and, you know, not going anywhere, not just pounding it to Embiid and everybody stands around until he, uh, you know, settles for a turnaround jumper. Like they did a better job with a late game offense of getting high percentage looks and of uh, getting scoring balance. So I think that the the pieces, the idea that the pieces fit better, I think is true. I just don't think the pieces are that great. I think that's kind of their problem right now. I would absolutely trade Simmons for Harden without a second thought if I was Philadelphia, despite all of the nonsense that Harden's been going through these last couple of weeks. I would do it a uh, hundred times out of a hundred. Here's my question for you on the Sixers. Okay. Are we sure they upgraded at coach? Oh, um, yes, I think so. I think <laughs> yes, I think- <laughs> or you think so? That's two different answers, Michael. No, no, I, I'm pretty confident that they upgraded at coach. I think a big part of why they had to move on from Brett Brown is that the two franchise guys, you know, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Uh, just were tuning him out and you know Josh Richardson and some other guys on that team had some words for the media after the season ended just about accountability in the organization which I read as shots at Brett Brown and so like you know I'm not saying that Doc Rivers I think like I I think that Doc Rivers is a really good coach for sure absolutely Um, but uh, but yeah I mean like if he's just able to get Simmons to be a more confident basketball player and Simmons first shot was a pull-up elbow jumper which didn't go in but that's a step in the right direction and he took a couple threes above the break in the preseason so that's nice to see but if he can get the most out of Simmons and the most out of Embiid just in like terms of their effort and their their engagement then he's an upgrade right there like regardless of the X's and O's and all of that so um but like real quick I just want to say that the Washington Wizards had a lineup last night in the fourth quarter that had Russell Westbrook Raul Neto and Ish Smith on the floor so if you're Philadelphia like you know I, I you know it's just not something to get excited about 
Yeah, and like Washington has really no choice right now. I think Rui Hachimura is out with some weird illness. He'll, he'll be back in a couple of weeks, so that can probably help their closing lineup a little bit. Um, they want to go to that the small groupings, the two- and three-point guard groupings, just to try to, I guess, push the tempo and apply as much pressure and create space for Westbrook, I guess. Um, you know, just try to make the games a little bit more random and chaotic. Um, I'm not sure that's a sustainable <laughs> strategy. Uh, but it's it's something that teams are going to have to you know cope with, and if you come out flat, that group can you know run you off the court potentially. And uh, you know I I think it might come back on the coaching question for Philly. Are Simmons and Embiid just who they are as personalities? Like, are they locked into their habits? Right? Can you coach those guys up? Can you get them more motivated? Can you get them to turn some corner from a focus and a commitment perspective? We'll see. I think that's an open question. And if Doc can't do it, um, now we've got evidence that two coaches struggle with it, and it's not just Brett Brown's fault. So that's that's one uh, item for Philadelphia that I'm watching this season. And actually, I hope we don't get an answer on it because I just hope they trade for James Harden. Get this thing over with. All right, Michael. My last team is the Golden State Warriors. I'm so ready to overreact and bury these guys after one game. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Come you know, on. <laughs> we've been we've been trying to exercise uh, patience on these other teams, but mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Wiggins, Ubre at $80 million, their entire front court rotation. You know, definitely shout out to James Wiseman for stepping into a high-pressure uh, you know, season opening environment and playing very well and delivering under that kind of a, a microscope, but Steph Curry just does not have enough to work with here. Um, you know, people are going to say you got to put the ball in his hands more. He's got to shoot more. I think that's true, but they're going to have to get you know some level of reliable scoring and shooting from other positions. I just feel like they're even thinner than I thought they were. I mean, I've been talking down on their sort of like players three through ten all off season. Those guys let me down even more than I expected, and I, I guess it's it's possible that they looked worse than usual because they're going up against a very deep and talented Brooklyn team, and they had absolutely yes. no positional answers for Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, but I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like they're going to get run off the court by Milwaukee, and I wasn't that impressed by Milwaukee, and then I feel like they're going to just you know be in a situation here, even if Draymond comes back, where they're just struggling to keep their head afloat. And I'm just a little bit worried about some of Steve Kerr's comments, Michael. He's coming out here and saying, like, he's complimenting Brooklyn's roster and kind of, oh, I remember when I coached a team like that. And, you know, he's he's kind of, you know, almost talking about his team as if he doesn't truly believe they're, like, ready to make a playoff push. Like, he's trying to keep expectations off that group so much. And I understand maybe there's some psychological element to it. But if I was coaching the Warriors, I wouldn't believe in Wiggins and Oubre either, right? I would have a hard time going in front of the media and being like, yeah, we've got our new wing duo. This is going great. We're going to be awesome. So I, I don't know. I, I'm wondering if uh, well, if, okay. if, if there's but, some confirmation bias here on my pessimism. But boy, man, it was a tough opening for them. <laughs> it wasn't good. You made a lot of points that I agree with. I mean, the Golden State Warriors are a thin basketball team. They are going to look like a sheet of paper when they're up against the deepest team in the league in Brooklyn. Brooklyn looks really good. Um, you know, Steve Kerr's comments, like Steve Kerr played with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman and Tim Duncan. He was coached by Greg Popovich, uh, coached by Phil Jackson. He's just been around greatness. He was the head coach of uh, maybe the best basketball team uh, ever in 2017. So, like, you know, his opinion on these things, it's like being around that for a lifetime and then coaching Kelly Oubre and Andrew Wiggins, like you're going to be a little bit disappointed, I think. But 
like you know i'm not gonna overreact too much to this it was i I, like james weissman was actually a a bright spot to me and i think that he will uh, obviously play even better as the season goes along and he was pretty impressive on both ends um just like more physical than i expected and he's not afraid to to shoot the ball which is nice but they also didn't have draymond i mean like this is the guy who you for years put in your top 10 in your top 100 for si um and he's not like completely over the hill i don't think he's 30 years old he'll still be a uh, a positive presence particularly on the defensive end for them so like I, I think Draymond can settle things down a tiny bit I think that you know Steph Curry ran more pick and roll in that first game than basically he has in like three or four years so they'll try to figure some things out and get him off the ball moving off the ball a little bit more and like Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre are going they're just going to shoot the ball better than they did in that first game. I think that there's like if they shoot that badly through the whole season then the the Golden State Warriors will win 6 games. So like I'm not I don't think I'm as concerned as you are. Career 33% three-point shooters from both those guys. Uh, so start getting concerned. Draymond, I think he peaked out actually Michael in the top 15 of the top 100. Your point is well taken, but I'm I'm a little <laughs> bit nervous on on Draymond's impact too. I just I mean, something is just off about this team. I think the organization and the fan base has had really a hard time coming to terms with some of the sharp twists and turns this organization has gone with the last couple of years. Um, you know, I, I don't think Draymond's the same guy he was in 2017. I'm definitely not going to be predicting that. Obviously, Clay is not in the picture. Um, you know, the offense that's working with Steph Curry in 2017 is not the same offense that's going to work in 2021. There's just no way you're going to be able to convince me of that fact. And then they've downgraded at basically every single position that they've got, you know, and even players like Looney, who gave them some good minutes a few years ago, um, you know, he's he's struggling to move around the court in, in kind of a different way, too. So I don't he know. He looks like a mummy. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's it's just a different vibe. Here's Here's my biggest overreaction, hot take, leading question for you. Yes. Are you convinced Steve Kerr will be their coach at the start of next season? Man, this is one of those takes that I am so jealous of. That's Um, what I'm here for, Michael. I, hey, like... Wow. This is, man, you're you're really making me think here. Well, you know, let me frame it this way. I just did the coaching hot seat, and I didn't even consider Steve Kerr as a candidate when we were going through the top five or six names that we listed, and we did that earlier this week. I watched 12 minutes of that game and saw him just sitting back watching his team, just really passive and not really even trying to coach him, just like, well, whatever, we're here to get rolled over. And I was thinking, (laughs) are we totally positive this is what Steve Kerr wants to be doing with his life? And then if you're looking at the changes this organization's gone through, I mean, if they do fall short of expectations in a big way, right, if they wind up having a season that's similar to last year, I'm not predicting or guaranteeing that. I'm just saying it. that is a possibility on the table for them. If that's how this season plays out and ownership just invested 80 plus million dollars to bring in Kelly Oubre to try to make a playoff run and they fall that short, someone's going to want accountability. Ownership is going to be looking around and saying, what went wrong here? Is Steve Kerr potentially the right coach for this particular Warriors team? And everyone loves to make that comparison between Kerr and Greg Popovich. You know, he's going to oversee a dynasty for 20 years, and it makes all the sense in the world. He's a very talented coach. He's a great communicator. He's a very nice guy. He's amazing with the media. He's got a million skills, right? 
But Popovich never went through a down year like the Warriors saw last year once they were up to speed, you know, during their uh, dynasty window. And he he certainly never went through two of those years in a row. And that's where I just kind of wonder, like, does it become a cutthroat business? Does it become a situation where people are saying, wait a minute, is this still the the right match like it was in 2014, 2015? Or is there a, a better type of coach for this particular group? These are all just open questions. I'm asking them. I understand that there's going to you know, be viewed as overreacting. I get it. But I thought uh, the opening night was dire. And if if it continues like this for a month or two months, not where they're losing every game, but where they're struggling to kind of get above, above 500 and you know they're not feeling like their offensive system is really working, they're not feeling like anybody can guard anybody, that's pure, that's peak frustration time for an ownership group. And uh, I just wonder, you know, has uh, has the ground shifted here? You know, it's really interesting that you say this because I recently went back and I read some quotes that Steve Kerr gave. Do you remember when um, uh, the Warriors broke ground on the Chase Center and there was that big ceremony with the shovels? Yes. And it was like the mayor of San Francisco and KD and Joe Lacob and Steve Kerr. Um you know, Steve Kerr is asked about what, what, like, are you excited to to coach in the in this new arena? And it's that that arena is obviously not going to be open for another couple of years. And he was basically like, in the NBA, uh, as good as everything looks right now, like being a head coach three years, you can't look out three years ahead and, and just assume you're going to be the head coach somewhere. That's not how the league works. So like, even then, I mean, it sounds very modest of him to say something like that because the Warriors were just this absolute juggernaut, but it's there's truth there. There really is. There's like, I, like I personally don't think that they would ever fire Kerr. I think they would be one of those mutually agreed to situations, and that he would actually maybe go to them first and just kind of express his displeasure with the whole situation. Um, but it's not impossible for him not to be the head coach next season. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. I mean, it could it could play out a lot of different ways. We didn't think Doc Rivers, you know, at the start of last year was going to wind up, you know, being out of there. But uh, they did one of those nope. those mutual agreements. And um, let's hope it doesn't come to that because I had my hopes up for entertaining Warriors basketball and they were not entertaining, right? They were really depressing. I mean, very early in that game, it was already over. And you're just thinking, well, we're probably not going to see Steph Curry in the fourth quarter tonight. Like, what was the point of this? You know, we've been waiting for a year and a half, basically, to see this guy play. And, you know, we had 11 good minutes. Glad we did it. You know, it's just the whole thing was sad. And, uh, you know, I, I just really wonder how ownership views all of this. And we know that they've been very demanding. They, We know that they've been very quick to give themselves credit in the past for being forward thinking and, and brilliant and intuitive. If they keep getting lapped by the rest of the league, I, I just can't see them sitting on their hands. Like something's going to have to change in a major way. All right, Michael, your last team, the 10th team for 10 teams, 10 takes. Who is it? The Phoenix Suns, a team I'm very excited to talk about after last night's win against the Dallas Mavericks, the winless and putrid Dallas Mavericks. Hey, come on. Um, (laughs) No, Phoenix Phoenix looked really good um, in that game. uh, And, you know, this is kind of the... Uh, this is what everyone wanted to see, you know, how Chris Paul would mesh with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton running pick and roll and, you know, Jay Crowder as that swing man at the four spot, uh, you know, able to space the floor a little bit and Mikhail Bridges. Um, um, I want to actually start this conversation not with CP or, or, or Devin Booker, but 
Mikael Bridges was the most impressive player on the team to me in that game. Like, I think he can be the best three and D player. And I, you know, I feel like three and D is such an insult, but because he can do more than that. But I, I think, I think you know what I'm talking about, but I think he can be the best three and D player in the entire NBA this season. And if he is, man, that'll do wonders for this team's ceiling. And, you know, when you have a guy who's just pure, like Elmer's glue and holds everything together and is knocking down threes and is, you know, uh, running side, second side pick and roll action and making back cuts and picking up. This is what really impressed me the most. He picked up Luka Doncic full court the entire basketball game. And Luka got his numbers, but Luka did not look like Luka for that entire game, basically. Um, You know, there were stretches where he hit some Luka shots that were absolutely ridiculous, and he made some Luka passes, um, and he got to the basket. But a couple of the floaters Luka hit were just like, you know, shake your head shots that were really well contested. I thought that Mikhail's defense, particularly, you know, what Luka really likes to do sometimes when he snakes a pick and roll is he'll come in a few feet in front of the three-point line and then step back behind the three-point line and take a, a, a three-pointer. Um, Mikhail Bridges was like all over that, and other defenders just aren't expecting it or ha- weren't last season. But Mikhail really snuffed that stuff out and forced Luca to give the ball up after he picked up his dribble. So, like, I, I think that, you know, it, it's very subtle, that type of play and that type of action and that type of intuition but if you have someone like that who's really engaged on the defensive end and still helping you out on the offensive end I just think he can do wonders for this basketball team I'm right there with you he had an incredible opening game I had weighed him as a candidate for the top 100 I ultimately decided not to put him on there that was going to prove to be a mistake um Everything that I don't like about DeAndre Ayton's game, I love about Mikhail Bridges' game. And so <laughs> maybe we can just resolve going forward when we talk about the Suns to continue starting the conversation with Bridges because it'll be a much more positive, productive uh, <laughs> conversation. No, they look good all around. And you also saw the, the, the Chris Paul impact late in that game. Uh, Dallas had yeah. Jalen Brunson on the court. He's the player you want to pick on defensively. They uh, run the little pick and rolls for Devin Booker to get the isolation against Brunson, and and Booker delivers the the kind of the key basket to seal that game. Um, high IQ play by Chris Paul, completely different level of late game execution than we're used to from you know Suns of of years past, where they're not even in late games, honestly, because they're down by fifteen or twenty points, right? So I think that uh, you're getting the subtlety of the positive. Uh, impact of Chris Paul there uh, on day one. I was interested to see that they limited his minutes quite a bit. You know, Chris Paul is is ramping up somewhat slowly, kind of like a LeBron James. I think he played 28 minutes last night. They got some good play from campaign, um, you know, in the backup role, and and they were you know doing a pretty good job of keeping their heads above water when Chris was off. I, I wasn't necessarily anticipating that. To me, Phoenix's big hole, though, is that backup five spot. They gave up so many soft baskets going to the Mm. hoop when Aiton's off the court. So that's a credit to Aiton's defensive presence, but it's also saying they're a guy short. Um, I think they tried to go pick up Frank Kaminsky. Not sure he's the guy to solve that problem, but um, they should also be a team looking to make a trade because it feels like not the hardest thing to address, and it would make a big difference overall in, in just their defensive stability. Yeah, I think that, you know, Dario Saric is the guy that they really like at the backup five. And I think that they hope that the rookie Jamil Smith will. Um, he's not that guy, you know, man. He, he's not going to no, be able no. to do it. Like, I'm writing him off after one game. I mean, no, not forever, but like, <laughs> oh, he, he's not going to play a playoff quality level basketball or defensive basketball 
as a rookie. It's not going to happen. I can promise you that. No, I, yeah, I'm not like saying that he's you know 1998 Tim Duncan, but I do think that um, like. Yeah, no, I mean, you make a good point about the backup five spot. And, and Aiton can't foul as much as he does. And Damian Jones picked up a foul every six seconds when he was on the floor. So um, that is definitely a little bit of a weakness. But I also like when this team can go, how this team can go small. And it's going to be really interesting to see just how they do that going forward. Um, and when Chris Paul is able to play more minutes, like as well as campaign played, um, who was just like a complete revelation for me. I was writing his name in my notebook uh way more than I expected to. Um, but when Chris Paul can play more minutes, I just think that this offense, like it, the sky is just the limit on what they can do. And they got a lot of shots that they really, I mean, they got the shots that they wanted a lot. And, uh, you know, guys like Langston, Langston Galloway and, and Cam Johnson are just absolute snipers and they showed it um, throughout the throughout the game. So, um, yeah, I, I'm still a huge fan of Phoenix. And I'm sorry to Dallas. I didn't mean to be rude at the start of this. I'm just, you know, there's like a, a 2% of my body that is rooting against Dallas because I want to be right. <laughs> 2%? No, more like 98%, Michael. You're, you've been emotionally and physically scarred by the Mavericks fans yelling at you for three weeks on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, go ahead and do your little dance. Look, I mean, after everything we said about Phoenix, if Luca plays like even a B level in the first half, Dallas wins that game. I mean, he was he was missing shots left and right. Looked totally out of sync. Uh, very uncharacteristic. He did turn it on in the second half uh, quite a bit, but um, uh, that's going to be a fun one to actually watch these two teams. You know, where, where do they wind up in the um, in the playoff chase? I think after that game, you would say Phoenix looks deeper. They looked a little bit more cohesive. They looked a little bit more balanced. Um, I still felt like Luca was, you know, pretty easily the best player on the court. But uh, you know, Dallas is uh, going to have to get back to the drawing board and find a little bit more support for him offensively. When he was off the court, um, I thought uh, things didn't go quite as well for them as they did last year. But it's only one game. All right, Michael, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. That was our 10 teams, 10 takes. Guys, if you're out there celebrating over the holidays and you've got some uh, opinions you want to get off about the first week of NBA basketball, let us hear them. We're we're glad to take them. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Michael, I also wanted to thank all the listeners who joined us in our Slack channel earlier this week. It was such a fun conversation. We were going back and forth for an hour. I really appreciate everybody who took the time to hop in there. If you haven't signed up already, go to si.com slash openfloorglobe. Michael and I will be announcing here and there uh, you know, moments and opportunities that we're going to hop in there at various points this season to keep the chats going. All right, Michael, they can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When they find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver, on Twitter at Ben.Golliver. Michael, I wish you and your family a very happy holiday weekend. The same thing to everybody else out there all across the Open Floor globe. Until next week, I will talk to you. Happy holidays to you as well, Ben, and to all our listeners, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans... Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford 
Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health, but by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and expect. Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply.